Hey everybody, welcome to Two Dads Named Grant, the podcast where I, Grant Overman, and me, Grant Vickery, get together and talk about what it means to be a man, a father, a husband, and all of those things in the 20th century. We try to be as earnest as we can, but we certainly aren't experts either, so we're hoping Well, you might not be an expert. Oh, I, I forget. Know. Yeah, that's uh, right. I'm the... <laughs> I'm, I represent. I'm the everyman. I'm I'm the common man in this in this particular setup, right? Right, and uh, <laughs> here here I am in all of my bourgeoisie glory, <laughs> with my That's, words like bourgeoisie. Right? Yeah, I already mistrust you because you've used a word with way too many syllables. Yes, that's right. All three of them. And uh, I, I well, I should I should note I'm on the right between the two of us. So using big words and on the right, what is this? That's yeah. I mean, that's not something you see very often, right? <laughs> That's what see, I've been led to believe. You don't see it every day. No. <laughs> um, that said, I do I do have the ability to just get a down-home Southern. We can go back there if we need to. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure what just happened, but for some reason you seem way more trustworthy in the last couple seconds. That's and, right. That's right. <laughs> have, I, have I mentioned how much I dislike brown people? Um, <laughs> and now suddenly I'm running for governor in Georgia uh, on accident, <laughs> entirely accidental there. So anyway, uh, not to cast aspersions on on the candidates for governor in Georgia. Actually, no, the opposite of that. Exactly to cast aspersions on them. I think they're both terrible people who will do bad things. But that's not what we're talking about tonight, thankfully, because it'd be very negative. We're talking about something quite positive. That's which, true. Uh, tell us a little bit about what we're talking about tonight, because I've forgotten. So if you're just joining us for the first time, you, you found the podcast and you decided to just start in the middle like a crazy person instead of but a lucky you episode. at the same yeah, time. Lucky you, because we've... We're finishing up our top five manly men list, which is not to say that they are follow the same standard of masculinity, but rather we were going to talk about what positive narratives and positive characteristics of masculinity do they portray and why and what, you know, we're kind of hoping to learn or, or gain from them. And so we, right. we're doing our last ones. We saved the penultimate examples in each of our minds for their well, own We saved episode. the ultimate examples. We did the penultimate. Sure. I'm Yeah. Using but, that word incorrectly, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, I teach I teach English and and you do psychology stuff, so I get to be wrong about stuff, but say it in the right way, and you get that, to be hey, right about things, but say it the wrong way. You're teaching English right now on this podcast, so which, if I'm being honest, was my my goal the entire time. Um, <laughs> that's re- the only reason I'm doing this is ultimately to correct your usage in, in the most <laughs> irrelevant ways possible. Um, but I am excited about this episode because we talked a lot about our first four examples um, and we kind of went into depth. We had to cut it short. But when we got to these final examples, um, it felt wrong, I guess, to to sort of just shoo them in at the end. And so we wanted to give them a little bit more time to them. Right. If you're saving the best for last, you don't want to you want to give them their due. Definitely. Right. And and we've also talked a lot about narratives. You mentioned that word. And I think a, a, a brief overview is kind of appropriate here. When, when Grant and I talk about narratives, what we're really talking about is a story that's shared by a lot of people culturally, by, by a culture or any sort of group. A story that's shared by a lot of people. And because everybody shares that story, it kind of becomes a framework or a skeleton that you can live into or you can create an expectation for yourself. That's what we're talking about when we say narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, why don't you start us off talking about your 
number one, unless we want to review the ones that came before, not in any kind of detail, but just saying like, hey, who they were, kind of give some more context for who's getting outshone by our best examples here. Yeah, I think that we, just a list. So my my first one was Mr. Feeney, followed by uh, Luke from Gilmore Girls, Graham, uh, Jude Law's character from The Holiday, and then Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender. Those were my, my first four, but my number five was Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, and you've noticed, I'm assuming, a theme with mine, which I choose a lot of uncles. I don't know yeah. why that is. It's to- totally accidental, by the way. I have a great dad. <laughs> I just My uncle didn't raise me. It's not some sort of unconscious <laughs> thing going on there. Uh, I have a great dad. But character-wise, I did, I did choose a lot of uncles, I guess. You know, I think that that... If we want to talk about that for just a minute, because I was thinking about that over the week, and I don't, I've known you for a really long time. Again, for anyone listening to this that doesn't know us, Grant and I grew up together uh, in the Atlanta suburbs. We went to the same school, to the same church, so we know each other pretty well, and I don't remember you talking about uncles a whole lot. I'm not assuming they're terrible people. No. I just No, they're not. Yeah, there's not one that like just stood out in your life, so I'm wondering if it's, if it's there's something about the choice you know, in there where, mm-hmm. or something being, or maybe it's the, the lack of choice rather. Like a lot of these guys are, are stand in dads, So it's been thrust upon them rather than them choosing and doing it for their own son. Right. And I think that's part of what I'm, what I'm keying in as a key aspect of masculinity is what happens when not you choose to be responsible for something like as is the case when you're a father, but rather when responsibility is kind of thrust upon you. And I think that if I'm talking about what the ideal male is in my mind. It's the person in many ways that when responsibility is thrust upon them, they don't back down from it and they rise to that challenge simply because that's what being responsible is, is you don't get to choose when you're responsible. I think that's a big part of it. And so structurally within these fictional accounts that we're talking about, uncles tend to play that role, you know, and and it's also, it's convenient narratively right oh we need a young person in the tv show or the movie or the book right so you know yeah. you don't have a wife here's a here's a nephew that you can take care of that that happens a lot sure but or if you're trying to make them sympathetic you have to kill one or both their parents right if it's a disney movie naturally right yes. you have to you have to murder at least one of their parents preferably both and then preferably someone else can take on that um kind of uncle that role, role yeah or you can just oust one parent entirely like bambi and then kill the other one never even right. mention the father character just kill the mother and yeah you know, he's, he's what do you do then doing deer stuff i mean yeah you know <laughs> it's it's important we i know we're talking about good dads but man bambi's dad like not we don't see him do we i mean absentee like it is not, a 90 minute film let's be fair like sure. the the film is three episodes of friends with commercials admittedly <laughs> so not a whole lot happens yeah. It's not like one of those contemporary films where the first hour and a half is dedicated to the backstory of Thor's hair or something. <laughs> I don't know. I'm complaining too much. Anyway, I, I want to mention my number one, though. Yeah. We want to move on Uncle to that. Uncle Yeah. My, yeah. Uncle Phil. And uh, I went to YouTube this week and I looked up some highlight videos of Uncle Phil and my my choice was reaffirmed in my mind. Because the primary characteristic of Uncle Phil that I latched onto was this characteristic of structure. And I'm going to talk Mm. a lot about why I think Uncle Phil is a good representation of structure. But I'm just curious, first of all, what comes to mind for you 
when I say structure in terms of a masculine ideal or a masculine example? Uh, I, I, rules is just the first thing that comes to me. The person, the person that's deciding what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say discipline too, but not in the like the kind of discipline it takes to become a carpenter, but in like you were bad and now you've been disciplined. And yeah, now you've been punished, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I'm. I, I gather from Phil when I watched the show and when I went and, and reviewed it, and it's really what I wanted to go for as well, because those things can be really negative, right? We've, we've all seen the example of the dad who, when their kid steps out of line, does something that's like aggressive and mean or violent, sure. right? And that's really bad. And so I think that people tend to associate, or you can, not that a lot of people do, but you can associate discipline with that negative violence, right? But there's also a version of discipline that is founded on love and is gentler. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm talking mm, about in... Yeah. In Uncle Phil. So there's a couple of episodes I wanted to talk about. And have you ever seen, I, I think you have probably, there's a, a video uh, that's pretty popular. It's posted online a lot of an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where Will's dad comes back. Have you ever seen this? Yes. I know that I've seen it at some point. I don't remember a whole lot about it because it's been a long time since I've yeah. watched Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince, but I do I do remember that sticking out, definitely. Yeah. So So... Will's dad is named Lou. I'll be brief if I can. But um, Will and Uncle Phil get into a fight because Uncle Phil says Lou is a bad guy. And Mm -hmm. he's right, right? Because Lou is a flake and he doesn't care about his son, which is why he hasn't been there the whole time. Will says to Uncle Phil, who the hell cares what you think? You're not my father. They get into this big fight over it. And Will storms out after saying some pretty mean things to Uncle Phil. And then, of course, Lou flakes on him, right? Lou leaves. His dad leaves and is not there for him. And Uncle Phil is, first of all, he chews out Lou, which I appreciate, right? This is not a soft, he's not a soft man. That's one thing we know about Phil is he's not a soft man. And he forces Lou to stick around to actually tell Will to his face what's going on, which, frankly, is crueler to Will, if we're being honest, right? Like... To hear it secondhand from your uncle is one thing, that your dad is not going to stick around for you. But to hear it directly from your dad, like, that's sure. meaner. It is but more honest and truthful, though. Right, but it's more honest and truthful. Truthful, There's a lesson there. And then after the whole event, even though there was this really sharp disagreement and Will said terrible things, Phil is still there for him. Right. If you haven't seen this, please just go to YouTube and type in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. How come he don't want me, man? I think is the the line that will pull that up yeah, for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah, it's brutal. Mm-hmm. But that was that's that's the scene that that kind of made me want to choose him in the first place. But then I went back to some other scenes. So one of the scenes that, or one of the consistent things that I noticed was that almost always, whatever the plot is, it involves Will and Carlton or some combination of the children messing up. And Phil being the disciplinarian. That's mm-hmm. almost always the standard structure. And that structure, I think, is really important. Because if you try to be your kid's friend, and you can be, I think, at some point. I'm good friends with my parents now. But if you are lax on that discipline, then I think that can have some pretty negative effects. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of lines I pulled out specifically that I wanted to talk about. One is, yeah. um, nobody does anything without help, Will. This is Uncle Phil talking. People open doors for me, and I work hard to open doors for you. It doesn't make you any less of a man to walk through them. Mm. I don't even know if I need any commentary on top of that, 
right? That's right. That, that speaks for itself pretty well. It, do, it does. And that's the exact kind of stuff that he has. He also has structure in the way that he treats his wife. This is something that I, I've talked about a lot with my wife because we're about to have our first kid, right? So I'm actually curious about uh, uh, how this has been for you. And this is a personal question that's kind of out of the blue, but I think it's an important one. So how have you worked on maintaining your relationship with your wife as you have introduced a child into the equation? Because that adds a lot of time and stress. Yeah, definitely. Man, and that's not something, it is so easy to not be good at that because you just have so many things that go on, right? Yeah. Especially a kid, it's so easy to just be like, well, let's do everything and then you're exhausted and, and it takes work to even, and energy to even do something fun together. Right. Or, right. or to have time or, and, and, and sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it's having a frank conversation, not because someone's done anything wrong, but just like, how are you doing? And that's right. That's it's really exhausting. Hard. Yeah. That's hard. Something that's hard for me, especially if it's a stressful time at work and my wife's a therapist. And so she takes a lot of other people's pain and problems all day long. And not that she talks about that constantly, but she does, you know, sometimes have to process through it verbally, non-verbally, it doesn't matter, you know, but it's not always rainbows and sunshine. Like, oh, my day was Right, amazing. and you worked in a clinic before too, right? So you understand the kind of emotional burden that comes with trying to be there for other people and to, right. to hear their difficulties, right? That's that's really hard. And so yeah. you know that when she comes home, she's going to be to a degree emotionally drained, even though she may not communicate that directly or she may not want you to a lot for that. You're still aware, so you're going to. Yeah. I think for us, and it's funny that you're talking about structure, because I think for us, what works the best and what we 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 have to keep ourselves and remind ourselves to do this kind of thing is planning. And yeah. make it you make time in your life for doing things together, right? Even if it's something as simple as we're going to watch a movie, right? Right. You you schedule it and you do it. Yes, exactly. This is going to be our night to to ask for a babysitter and to go do something together. And what's funny is before we had Zach, we always laughed about how fast our dates were because we would go and we'd talk maybe a little bit while we're eating, maybe not. We both like to eat, so it was like, (laughs) that's the only (laughs) time she could ever get me to shut up was to have a meal in front of me. And we would do that and maybe we'd go do something else. We also, you know, especially early in our relationship, didn't have a whole lot of money, so you can't pay to go do things. So the date would kind of just be the whole evening, right? We would come home and we wouldn't go to our separate parts of the house and we would spend time together. Well, now it's like, just being out of the house. And even when we're there, yeah, Zach's asleep, right? But it's just being away from your house for longer than like two hours. Right. Or, or even right? away from your kid. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's so, so we find ways to make it last longer or we make sure that we talk more on there. So again, it, it's that there's less of that spontaneity that's romantic in a certain kind of way. Sure. Right? Sure. But, but that, that's only available if you've got a lot of free time, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, but you've, you've got to make it happen, which again, can take the air out of the balloon a little bit if you let it, I think. It feels forced, but that doesn't mean it's disingenuous. No, it doesn't. And I think there's something sweet to that too, to understand that like, even though this is scheduled and this is difficult, I know that this person is really busy and exhausted and they're still doing this. Like they've, they want to do this. They're putting this time in. Yeah. I think there's something complimentary. Yes, definitely. Well, yeah, exactly. You matter enough for me to rearrange my life for Right. Uh, I'll say she's way better at it than I am. Any anything involving scheduling, my wife because she doesn't forget stuff, um, which sometimes <laughs> can be really aggravating. That's different than you are. Uh, yeah. yeah, that can be really aggravating sometimes because there's plenty of things I'd prefer that she would forget, or sometimes sometimes just forget something so that she'll remember what it's like and have a little bit more uh, sympathy for me, right? But she doesn't right, do that very often, right. so it's probably hard for her to 
um, not be frustrated when it's like the eighth thing I've forgotten in the last two days. But I would say, so to answer your question then more succinctly, that's what we do. You know, it's, it's being, doing it on purpose, not just letting it happen, making sure that it happens. Sometimes even when we don't feel like it, um, that's what we do about maintaining the relationship. And it's funny, uh, like we do things with Zach and it's a blast. Um, and, and, and we do that on purpose and it's fun and I love it. And right. It. But that's but a different thing though, thing. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not the same thing at all. Um, so yeah, making time, childless time and making it happen. That's the, that's the big one uh, for us anyway. Yeah. And so the reason I, I, I bring that up in con in the context of uncle Phil is that his wife, Vivian, who actually the actress for Vivian changes like halfway through the show and it's really jarring. Um, yes. <laughs> It's, yeah, that's a different it thing. That happens. It, right? Yeah. And you feel like like you're cheating on your wife because you did such a good job acting like the other woman was your wife. But no, it's it's <laughs> no, it's not the case, right? This different actress. Anyway. There are several scenes where Uncle Phil talks to Vivian in a very romantic way, and nothing inappropriate, because it's a daytime TV show, right? But you can tell that not only does he like deeply care about her, and not only does he like focus on maintaining his attraction to her and try to make sure that she knows that uh, he's attracted to her. He knows how to say those words, right? Mm-hmm. There's a He has a way of speaking to his wife to let her know that she's beautiful. That is something that I think a lot of guys tend to shy away from. To, like, oh, I don't want to be the guy that says these kinds of words, or it would sound cheesy coming from me or whatever. Mm. And there's a confidence and a boldness to being able to, to do that. And so there's... He creates, though, by doing that, he creates a structure for his family because that relationship is solid because he invests in it. And I think that's a bigger gift than spending all the time in the world with your kid is saying, I'm going to section off this time to spend with my wife or we're going to section off this time to spend together so that your your child gets to see what that looks like. And right. I think that's a really beautiful thing to model. Absolutely. And it makes you a better parent, right? Because yeah. you're, you're, you're as a human being, you have more of your needs met. You're a better team when you're on the same page and emotionally, everybody feels good. But I think it also, you're modeling that, you know, mom has value, right? How we treat her matters. Um, especially in a family like, I don't remember their last name, but the, the Fresh Princes of Bel-Air. That's not their real name, I'm sure. No. But Phil's family. <laughs> I can't you know, remember he's the, either, He's actually. the patriarch. Like, he's the breadwinner. Sure. You know, I mean, he's kind of in charge to a certain degree. I mean, they're clearly a team. I think the show shows that really yes, well. Yes, it does. But it's not this sort of, like, you, I, you're comparing him to, you know, your Archie Bunker or um, some other TV dad. You know, that's kind of like I'm the traditional whatever June Cleaver's husband's name is. Ward. Ward, Ward, Ward Cleaver, Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver. No one's yeah. actually named Ward. That's ridiculous. Um, I don't know. There's a guy in um, some other show. I can't. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Ward. Rare name. Yeah. But anyway. You You're going to feel really bad if I've decided to name our child Ward, by the way. <laughs> which, I, oh, I can say that since Jess and I are being public with this now, we are having a son, which is super exciting. Yeah, that is. Congratulations. Thank you uh, very much. For that. So, yeah. I mean, it, it just, it, it matters. Not only because how do your male children then treat women or your female children feel about themselves, but just like. Or expect to be treated. Understand yeah, what the standard yeah, is. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. Other people in this family besides me have value and I will act that way. That's a big thing. Right. Yeah. No, I and, and I think that he does do a good job explaining that and modeling that. And so does Vivian as well. Like they both do a really good job of of demonstrating that importance. And I actually have like notes A through J here, but I want to skip most of those because it'll take us a million years to get through them and, and talk about two that are, are left. Because um, I think that 
segues into the next question that you wrote down, which I think is a great question, but we'll get there. So the first part is, um, there's an episode where he talks to Will about college and he talks about who his favorite professor was. Mm. And there's this sense when we see a male who is a patriarch, who is a leader, that they just kind of were born that way, right? That they sort of arrived. And he says, I was completely adrift in college and was not doing well at all. And he mentions this one professor who he says is the professor. And it's the guy who challenged him. And Mm. I'm going to talk more about that when we talk about the overall positive meta narrative for men. But that idea of responding to a challenge or as the male co-leader of a family being one of the people who exhibits challenges. I think that that's a, that's a really important thing that I want to hold on to. But the last part, and this is, this is the most important one. And this is something that I actually didn't know from watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but that I learned when I was doing this research is that Phil was a part of the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, in the, in the canon of the show, he marched in Birmingham and he was very involved in the civil rights movement as a young man. And in the show, of course, he's a judge, right? That's his mm-hmm. that's his job. And right. there is a character who used to march with him who's telling him that he's sold out and become an Uncle Tom because he has money and wants his family to go to these nice <laughs> colleges and because he went to this nice college, right? And that's actually something that I deal with a lot in my work because I have a lot of students who are from Atlanta public school systems who come in and they're like, if I use these words or speak this way or write this way, then I'm betraying like my home, right? I'm lying about who I am and that's really wrong. Wow. So this is a very present thing for me. Um, but what he says in response is, but now I have a family and I choose not to fight in the streets. I have an office to fight from and I am not ashamed to write a big fat check for something I believe in. And that doesn't make me any less committed than you. And I think that what he's done is he's found a way to balance his commitment to causes um, and his commitment to his family, even though I would say his first allegiance is to his family, but his allegiance to the causes is also an allegiance to his family, right? Because and vice is, versa, I would say. Yes, exa- exactly. That's the whole the whole idea that I'm going for here. And yeah, that's perfect because his his focus on his family or his focus on these causes is because it's about kind of creating uh, a whole world for his family or creating a family to fit into this world right. or to improve it, I suppose. Does that make, does that make any sense? I kind yeah. of rambled on a bit there. No, no, no. That makes total sense. It, 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 you are at the same time that you're supporting the cause in a different way. You have means, right? You're not doing it, but you're, you are saying by doing a good job in this part of my life, by being a good dad, Raising children who are good people, who are a force for positive change in the world. I am contributing to this cause, but in a different way from you. You know, yeah. and and yeah. a lot of causes need both, right? Like there are some people who do some kind of work that children make it harder for them to do their job because by necessity, when you have a child, everything must take the back seat to that child. Right? Sure, yes, um, agreed. The, the the child's needs must come first, and so doesn't mean you can't have other aspects of your life, but if something has to give, that's what's going to give, right? Um, but man, but yeah, raising the next generation to do things the right way, to follow in your footsteps. Um, and I think most people who do that kind of thing or who are passionate enough about a cause like that have someone in their life that modeled that for them, right? And yeah. So, yeah, and so being so. cognizant of the fact that you need to and have the opportunity to model that for somebody else. Like, who better to do it than someone who knows what it's like to have that? 
happen, right? Right, yeah. Well, I think we forget that Martin Luther King Jr. is a junior, right? And his father was so inspired by the figure of Martin Luther who stood up to the Catholic Church that he changed his name and his son's name, right? Right. So here's this person who is... When we see the, the the works of Martin Luther King Jr. and we admire him as a man in history, we don't spend a lot of time talking about who his father was. And clearly his father was somebody who instilled those values in him, which is not to take away from the great works of Martin Luther King Jr., but to say that everything happens in a context and that there are important people that surround all of this, you know. Um, anyway, but yes, I, I think that's very, that is that is accurate. And it speaks to why I chose Uncle Phil as well. Because he does provide that kind of structure, and it's a meaningful and disciplinary structure, and it's based on kind of a bedrock of love that's always there, and consistency, right? He's yeah. the opposite of Lou, right? The how come he don't want me, man, that's not something you would ever say of Uncle Phil, because he's always there, even though, you know, his being there carries with it some discipline and some expectations. Sure, sure. I mean, it's, that's, I, I, I have to say, I think that's a great choice, just because this is wisdom that human we've had this for millennia probably. Right. I mean, in the old Testament, I'm sure Confucius, like all kinds of people have talked about, like if you raise a child and you show them the right way to do things, like it's going to work out, stick to your guns, right. Do this kind of stuff. Right. And that's what uncle Phil does. Like no amount of whining, no amount of repeated offenses, no amount of, um, even hurtful things that he might say. He's like, I I will not budge. This is, this is, this is what is Right. Right. I mean, right. that's a, that's a, and I mean, that's the kind of character you would have if you're a person who marches in Birmingham, right? <laughs> and it's part of the civil <laughs> yeah. rights movement. I'm willing yeah. to take what you can throw at me. And people have thrown worse at him, right? Than the, than the stuff his children do. Um, right. But, but that is something that is not appreciated, I think, very often because it is not flashy. No, uh, it's not. It's partially very, because it's it takes a long boring. time uh-huh. to see the, the, the gain from that. It is the, the old, I mean, raising a child's got to be about the ultimate delayed gratification, right? It is, I mean, just, if we're talking just biology, it is years before human children contribute anything. Um, right, but other one day than, they'll mow the lawn, that'll be nice, right? <laughs> oh, you have no idea. I, that is like, that keeps I me going. I hate mowing the lawn. I, I don't necessarily hate it that much, it just keeps me going, because I remember when my dad was like, I don't have to mow the lawn anymore, because when I was in college, my dad would wait the last, like, three weeks before I came home, and not mow the grass, <laughs> so that I could do it when I got, got home. And the thing is, he should have, <laughs> because he was a good dad, and he worked very hard, and he deserved to have someone come mow the grass for him when sure. they got home from college uh, that he was helping put me through. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Now, at the time, it drove me nuts, but I just, yeah, it's like, man, once you have, you're like, oh, you can mow the grass and not do... <laughs> I was mowing the grass before I could do a good job. That's how much my dad didn't mow oh, the yeah, grass Oh, yeah, I anymore. did. I definitely did a bad job the first several times I mowed the grass, 100%. Right? Exactly. And then you're made to go do it again better. Like, you missed all these spots, so you did it terribly and like... Yeah. I was always like, man, I did this for you. Why are you so mad just because I did a crappy job? Um, I, it took a right. while for that particular lesson to sink in for me. But now but, you understand. Yeah. 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 That, it's paid dividends, you know, because, you know, now I can mow my grass and it doesn't look terrible. Um, you know, so thanks for that, dad. Um, if you, <laughs> I, if, wish, if you I wish you'd also known that lesson in college when we lived together. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure you mowed the grass exactly zero times. I know. I know I did it at least once or twice. I don't know if it's when you lived there or not. <laughs> Eventually, okay. we just paid someone. We did the Uncle Phil thing too. We we learned we just paid people a check to write our lawn, promote more lawn. Did you really, Matt? Uh, yeah, one that of was our definitely other not while I lived there. Ugh. It wasn't a whole lot. It's Abil- it's Abilene, Texas, so it's eh. not a very expensive place to live. So, yeah, it was okay. okay. I'll I'll forgive you when the city of, of Abilene my primary kept threatening characteristics is forgiveness. 
<laughs> when the city of Abilene kept threatening to uh, write a fine citation us? because we weren't mowing the lawn. We thought this will be cheaper in the long run than paying the fines. Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. But meta narratives, yeah. You're, yeah. So as, as summary, so synthesize my your that I chose, choices for us. Yeah. Yeah, my traits that I chose were expectations. That was Mr. Feeney. Um, uh, acceptance of what you don't understand. That was Luke. Adaptability. That was Graham. Forgiveness was Iro, and then structure was Uncle Phil. And so there's there's a lot in common there. And I was thinking about this because the 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 question that you asked, I thought was a a, a really great question. Which is how does this form a meta narrative, right? So, and speaking of a meta narrative in terms of what it is, it's this story that we can share between a bunch of different people. And it has this power to make us want to live into it. It creates a set of expectations or a good model. And if men have a good meta narrative, then it's easier for them to grow into good men. It's not the only way they can do it, but it's it certainly helps. So when you ask this question of how does this create a positive meta narrative for men or how would I summarize all of this? I thought about that a lot. And all of these traits together as masculinity, I came up with this idea based on these other examples that I was looking at, that it's a man's job um, to provide for his children a heuristic of cause and effect in the real world. So what I mean by that is this it is this set of rules, right? It's this way where what you do and how you behave has consequences, but the way that that's structured is really difficult because it has to have real consequences, but it also has to be based on this foundation of love and clear communication. And I think that's difficult for a lot of guys to be able to strike that balance between I'm upset at you and you need to know that I'm upset at you because you've done something wrong and I'm going to punish you. But you need to understand that the reason I'm punishing you is because I care about you so deeply and I love you and I love you unconditionally. And I always will. Mm. Um, so all of these these traits come together to me to make that kind of, of model. That it's a it's a father's job, not to say exclusively of or, or only a father's job, not a mother's job, but I do think it's at least partially a father's job, a shared job perhaps, to model what the world's going to be like. Here's this way that if you behave, you'll be successful in my household. And when you leave my household, if you behave that way, you're going to be successful in the world. Um, and I think there's two levels of that. Because on the one hand, I think you need to do that for your children. But this is also about doing that for the world. Because mm. you want to impose that heuristic back on the world. That set of rules, right? You want to impose that back on the world. Where honesty is rewarded. And hard work is rewarded and mercy and justice are rewarded, right? Because the world is not that way. You know, lies are rewarded and cruelty is rewarded. And we can see this in our politics and we can see this in the media and we can see this in ourselves and in all the people we know, right? Right. And so it's, I think it's partially what I would describe masculinity as is the ability to impose that narrative back on the world. That's Which is it's hard, um, it's it's very hard. And if you, I think we mentioned Hammurabi in one of the earlier episodes, but he was the great king who was the lawgiver, and that was considered like the greatest thing you can do. And historically, lawgivers always have context with with gods, whatever religion or myth you're dealing with. Lawgivers always have context with gods, and it's that idea of here's a set of rules that if you follow, the outcomes will be better. 
And so I thought about how, how do I arrive there? How do I arrive at the person who can do, how do I become the person who can do that? And then I thought about my examples. Um, and for all of my examples, it's the way that they responded to hardship. Mm. Um, instead of becoming cruel or unkind or closed off or violent, they responded to hardship by using that hardship to become better people. So this is, I guess, my story for masculinity. My my grand narrative is one where it's about making rules and responding to hardship in a certain way. And if you respond to hardship in a certain way, then you'll be the kind of person who can make good rules. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And okay. I think and it, and it and it's it is cyclical in nature, right? Because if yeah, you respond yeah. to hardship in a certain way, that gives you the kind of maturity and wisdom to make good rules, and then you live by those good rules in the face of hardship, right? Which then yeah. refines them even further because what has stood up to my hardship, what has gotten me through it in the way that I wanted to, right? And, and so you're constantly rebuilding yourself through the cycle because if we can know one thing, we can know that hardship is a certainty, right? We all have it <laughs> at some point. Yeah. So you have to be prepared for it. And that speaks so much to what others see in you, right? Like what, what, what speaks loudly. And the world, like you said, re- rewards us or rewards those of us who do not follow that pretty handsomely a lot of the time but sure we know i mean this is research has been done and it's funny is we we all spend a lot of time chasing notoriety and fame and money but we know that's not what actually makes people happy which is a fascinating topic in and of itself that we would know something to be true or untrue and yet we continue to do it right i know this money isn't gonna make me happy but i'm gonna really really try i think it's harder to pursue the other but man i i it not only benefits you and maybe your immediate family but i think just others to look at you. Sure. Um, again, we've talked before, like socially men arrange ourselves in a hierarchy. And if uh-huh. you can circumvent or create a different hierarchy, right. And say, Hey, look at this. Then I'm on the, I mean, just what, what if men arranged ourselves on our hierarchy based on those kind of traits? Right. And right. so when you, yeah. ex- when you give that example, not just to your own male or female, ch- you know, your male children, but just other men, um, what a, I mean, that's why it's a powerful meta narrative, right? That idea of, of the mentor, right? And all of these sort mm-hmm, you know, your mm-hmm. Obi-Wan Kenobis, we didn't talk about anything like that, but it's the idea. I mean, that's kind of where the uncle comes in, right? The, yeah, it does. The non-father figure that shows the way to other people. It's like this example that we get um, and right. watching people, how they endure hardship. There's there's fewer examples more powerful than that. So I think that's that's really good. And And two, I think it's important to note that you can't choose when to be that person, right? Like you... It's not like you can turn it on when you're with your son or daughter and then oh, yeah. turn it off later on. Like you either are that person or you're not. And that's that's a terrifying prospect to me because it's like I think of the the dad that I am going to be, right? The way that I'm going to raise my child is the person I am in the dark when no one's watching. That's that's going to be the father of my child, right? And so I want to make sure that Whoever I am in the dark and in the shadows when no one is looking is just as moral as the person I would be if I were being filmed in front of a thousand people, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, because you, if you are this kind of person genuinely, then you can't turn it off. That's just who you are. And I think that's another part of that, that narrative. But speaking of things that can't be turned off and that are very consistent, uh, I think it's a good point now because we're going to run a little long-winded if we don't to transition into your number one pick. Yeah. Absolutely. Just to refresh for my others leading up to this, as you did, mm-hmm. um, I had talked about Calvin's dad from the comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes, right, right. with his defining characteristics be- characteristic being patience. 
talked about uh, Ronald Ulysses Swanson from Parks and Recreation, the TV show. And the manliest defi- man. Yes, his, his defining characteristic being integrity, speaking of mm-hmm. acting uh, consistently, no matter who's looking at you or who can tell. Um, yeah, yeah. My third was, we each had one that like almost no one's going to have heard of, right? And that right, was mine, yeah. was number three, and that was Land Mandragoran, who is... It's a good one, though. It like, is a good it's one. It's really good. He's uh, a big character from the epic fantasy series Wheel of Time. And Go read it right now. It's super yeah, good. Exactly. Quit listening, listening to this podcast. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah every time Wheel of Time comes up in this podcast, and it probably won't stop coming up, we're going to tell you to just stop and go read <laughs> I- it. <laughs> I don't think it will. Yeah. Um. Uh, my number two is Jack Pearson from This Is Us, the the hit show on NBC. And who? Yeah, I, got, I, I know nothing that. about that, but no. it sounded great. Yeah, Jack Pearson. Uh, t- and he was a, a person who's constantly working on himself, right? And and, and not leaving that hard work um, mm-hmm. undone. And, and my number one is uh, Samwise Gamgee from The Lord of the Rings. And I'm, I'm gonna have the true to have, hero. Yes. I'm <laughs> right. I'm going to have to have the most um, common you know, thing to write in a junior high or high school paper to be like, well, he's the real hero, and I thought of that all by myself, and everyone else says, <laughs> yeah, we, we get it. That's like the whole point of the movie. That's the point of the, yeah. Right. Um, but Or the book. Uh, I, speaking of movie and book, that was my mini soapbox I was going to get on for as short a time as I can. Not that I don't love the movies, because I absolutely do. I think that something in Sam's character, for good reason, was left out of the movie version partially because it had to appeal to a wider cultural audience partially because uh-huh. it, it probably didn't translate as well on film but the the miniature history lesson is that you know Sam was kind of modeled after this idea of like the manservant in the British military around the time of World War 1 when you know Professor when Tolkien, Tolkien was fighting in the military yeah right exactly and and so it plus man especially not that everyone that made this movie was american but we there's you want to talk about ideas of masculinity. There's just something that comes off as I think Americans would look at as effeminate in some of these British cultural mannerisms, especially older ones. So I think that was left out to appeal to a wider audience a little bit. Well, sure, but, it's assumed to be effeminate to be subservient, right? right. Well, and also I think to, or to be serve. tender-hearted and to show affection, uh-huh. which is something I'll talk about a little bit more with Sam. And there are multiple characters that do that. But all that to say, I'm going to talk more about the book version of Sam and try to make it clear. Although I do yes, think please. That the movie, which is probably at this point a little bit more widely consumed, uh, is something that has does a really good job of showing some of these scenes. And uh, my favorite scene in the whole movie is which I'll talk about. I think they did perfect um, in The Return of the King. But Sam's defining characteristics to me are dependability yes, yes. and sacrifice. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. And 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 they kind of go hand in hand and it's funny because it's very similar to what you were just talking about. So, I think that must that means we either are way too similar in how we think and look at the world or we've hit on something that might actually be worth uh Right. Well, I think it's worth. a good I think it's a good meta narrative. I don't think I'd say that we're too similar because I'm right about most things and you're usually <laughs> wrong just as a rule. So, it can't we can't be that similar. But but, but anyway, about this, you yeah. may you may well be right. So I chose Sam because of those characteristics. And so Sam is the ultimate example of dependability, right? I mean, he, mm-hmm. for, you know, all two of you who don't know the story from the Lord of the Rings, right? Frodo has to carry the ring to Mount Doom and cast it in the fire. It's this impossible task that no one could do. Not all of the normal sized six feet tall men with swords and muscles. No one could do that. You could have all of them in the earth and they wouldn't be able to. But we're going to pick the Hobbit, the small, unassuming non-warlike character to carry this big bad thing and throw it into the fire and get rid of it forever. Right, and Sam right. is his his close friend and servant 
um, in a lot of ways. And he is the only one that ends up going, it eventually ends up, it's basically him and Frodo walking alone into the most dangerous place on Earth. Right, and, he's the only one in for the long haul, truly. Right, I mean, others contribute in different ways, but he's the one that's there with Frodo going through carrying the ring. And, and right. no matter how bad it gets, and they're alone, and they're hungry, and they're experiencing some terrible things. And he has they're to creepy watch, monsters, right? He has to he has to watch his best friend kind of be transformed by the awfulness from the ring that he has to bear. And he he doesn't you know he he doesn't give up on that. He's with him through thick and thin. And there's a line um, from both the book, and thankfully they kept it in the movie. And this is one of the things where I think the movie it's just it, seeing it and hearing it is different than just reading it on a page. Where sure he tells Frodo that. Gandalf, you know, said to him before they left, he, he took Sam aside and said, you know, don't you lose him, Samwise Gamgee. Like, whatever you do, don't let this right. come the, out of your The sight. wizard leader of all of this, Gandalf, yeah. says, don't you right. lose him, Samwise Gamgee. Yeah, that's a very powerful and, line. And he says that to Frodo, and he says, he says, I don't mean to. Like, I this, this matters yeah. to me. And so it doesn't matter. Even when Frodo tells Sam to go home, right, when, when Frodo is corrupted by the ring and kind of loses his way and is following Gollum and kind of listening to all those bad voices and mm-hmm. negative thoughts and is giving into the power of the ring. And he tells Sam to go home. Like Sam doesn't go even when he's not wanted. Sam's there. He's like, I will be. And so, you know, in similarity to uncle Phil, yeah, right? He uncle even, fills him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He uncle fills. Um, or perhaps, no, Frodo. it's better to say that uncle Phil Samwise Gamgee's. Will. Right. He came that's a little the, bit before. <laughs> he uncle was first. Phil, didn't he? And, and so that's the dependability of him. He, mm-hmm. and, and, and the sacrifice I think comes in that, that you cannot be dependable to someone in that way. If you are not willing to sacrifice your own comfort, your own well-being in some cases, and as well, your own needs and desires. And Sam frequently puts himself in harm's way for Frodo faces his greatest fear. In fact, um, fights, uh, the giant spider. He doesn't like spiders at all. Which is um, who, understandable. Who would like a giant evil spider? Nobody. That, that's yeah. everyone's greatest fear. Um, <laughs> and and he and he fights him for that. And and he even um, at one point, um, you know, tells Frodo towards the end. And this is the, this is my favorite scene in all of the movies. I cry every time that I watch it. Um, and reading it in the book, I cry when I read it too. And I and I went back and checked to make sure. And this was one of the one of the scenes from the book they ripped. They ri- just ripped it like word for word. Basically. Word for word. Yes. Um, the tone might be a little bit different, but. He basically they're they're on the slope they're almost to the goal and Frodo falls down and can't get back up, and Sam says and they've already tried he's already offered to carry the ring for Frodo and it didn't go well so he says I may not be able to carry it for you Mister Frodo but I can carry you and he picks yeah. him up and yeah. he carries him into the play thing and so he literally taking upon a burden that is not his that somebody somebody else's mess Sam is cleaning up. Um, sure, he, and he's sacrificing, and you know he doesn't. At this point, they have a, they're assuming they're, di- they're going to die. He actually has a really beautiful passage before this, where he talks about, you know, do you remember, Mister Frodo, all these great things about home? You know, springtime and the taste right, of strawberries right. and all this stuff, right? And Frodo can't remember it, but Sam, Sam still knows he knows what he's doing, what he's giving, and up. it's and no knows why he's there, right? He's there for those things and for his friend. Yeah, absolutely, and so and and so I think those go hand in hand. And I think a lot of time, why I think this is a powerful narrative for men today is a lot of us desire to be viewed in this light as someone who is dependable, as someone who is the rock, who is strong. Right, yeah. And you'll notice, not that there aren't characters in Lord of the Rings specifically that accomplish that in more traditionally masculine ways, but Sam is sacrificing so much. And if you go back to our version of, you know, our definition of negative toxic masculinity, Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of sacrifice there. It's it's the opposite, right? Is I want to cut no, corners. No, no, yeah. You know, I don't want to put in the, even the basic sacrifice. And, and Sam willing 
to do that for not really a whole lot of reward, but it, it is rewarding in and of itself, similar and to, to what you were well, talking about. Well, it doesn't about. it doesn't move him up in the hierarchy, right? Right. Like Sam is Sam is not the one who is counted as being the hero generally, right? And he doesn't right. do it to move up in the hierarchy, which that's this is a a, a a biblical kind of thing as well as whoever would be first shall be last, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and who, the last shall be first. If you want to be, I think this ideal of masculinity that we're talking about, especially if you're thinking in terms of hierarchies, is you have to do the right thing, not because it moves you up the hierarchy, but in spite of the fact that it might not move you up the hierarchy. And that is the ability to ignore the hierarchy is a hierarchy of its own. And I'm experiencing yeah. kind of that odd sensation of having said one word too many times. But <laughs> I think that is that is very much a part of why Sam is such a great example of this is because he doesn't do any of these things for his own glory or his own merit or his own recognition, right? Mm-hmm. He just, he does them because it's right. Right, absolutely. Well, and and because he cares about Frodo and somebody, and that was another part of our definition of toxic masculinity, right? Was valuing your own needs and wants and well-being before mm-hmm. others and, and so yeah. then the opposite of that would be something that's good right is to put others above yourself and i think i chose him as my number one because i think in the kind of transition there's one more thing i'll say about sam but i'll begin to transition into okay talking about my overall positive meta narrative i think part of what we've lost sight of in our narrative for men and boys in our meta narrative, especially in our country, is kind of what you alluded to that the things that are not morally upright are often rewarded. And as men, we want to stand out. We want to be the hero. We want to have recognition and respect. And that's almost universal among men. And we have been told or been sold this story that the wrong things are what bring you that, right? And if you mm-hmm. accumulate enough of the wrong things, sexual conquests, power over others, uh, you know, money, which is right, a form of power. But just if, if you sure. prop yourself up on the broken down, you know, corpses of your enemies, right, you are now king of the mountain. It, it, like the, the world the limitations is, of their women. Yes. Right. <laughs> the exactly. Conan the Barbarian approach. Yeah, you, you, you are, you know, if you are king of the mountain, you have to shove everybody off first. And I think yeah. that... The opposite, like the people, the opposite is often true, or maybe always true. That if you go the other way and you prop up other people, then yeah, you don't get those other. Tra- but we know those other trappings are false idols, right? We know that those are something that don't actually bring us any kind of real, lasting fulfillment. And so, right, you know, right. Sam is content in his role as he knows the quest, right? There's the quest, and and then his personal quest, which is Frodo. Like the quest to destroy the ring and Frodo, and part of, and part of the reason that the quest to destroy the ring is important to Sam is because it's important to Frodo, and so he takes this right. on for himself, even though there's not much for him to gain personally in it. And I, and one of the things that is in the book that's lost in the movie a little bit is the genuine affection that he has for Frodo, and in the movie yeah. he's a little bit more his pal and comic relief, and in the book he really is a servant. Like right. Frodo well, is I wanted the to nobility. ask you about this yeah. because you mentioned earlier that this is something that you see happening a lot in some older British media or literature that is kind of anathema to American meta narratives about masculinity. But the idea of the genuine affection and of being a servant. So, can you ex- expand a little bit more on those ideas? Yeah. Well, again, this relationship—it's one where there is clearly a 
uh, to talk about hierarchies again, like Frodo is the nobility, right? He is the leader. Yeah. Sam yeah. is the servant. Frodo is more educated. Even his lines in the book are um, a little bit more eloquent in his vocabulary, right? a little more sophisticated. Sure. Um, but I think what Tolkien was wanting to do with hobbits just as a race, but also then with these two characters is highlight this idea that there is more than one way to win glory and honor. And that can be by being a servant. And I mean, it is so clear. It is just, they are of a different class in the book. And again, even the way they talk, yes. you don't get that yes. in the movie as much that it's, it, it's putting your face over and over again. And Sam doesn't quit. Like, this is my job. This is what I signed on for. He has a personal relationship with Frodo too. It's not like Frodo owns him. He's not a slave, but he takes that job very, very seriously. And they, again, just hobbits in general. I mean, we see towards the end of the story, right? These are the ones that they are the heroes of Middle Earth, like these people. And, and what do hobbits value? They value community and. Uh, the earth and good times and giving each other presents and good food. Yeah. And there, there's a quote actually yeah. from the Hobbit. Um, I believe it's the Hobbit. It might be Lord of the Rings, but it's, it's Bilbo saying that if more people valued song and good food and merriment, you know, over hoarded gold or whatever, then the world would be a much better place. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember right, the exact, right. but it's basically like, you know, can you focus on the right things? And that's what Sam is able to do. And Sam is, he's capable of being, you know I mean? He has, he fights off the spider and he fights orcs and sure. he's, still, he's, he does he's strong in his own right. I right. think that is that is important to mention is that he's strong yeah. in his own right, but his his strength is in service to another. Yes. And never produces any glory for himself. Because we have the advantage of being that outside reader and seeing mm -hmm. what he does. But if you're actually within the narrative of Lord of the Rings, then Sam does not come across as a hero because his actions are unseen by everyone except for Frodo, right? Right, right exactly. There's, he's not. We see him as a hero, but no one else is going to see him in that light. No, and there's the there one scene where Frodo says talks to him about, you know, Samwise the Brave. Right? They might write story. You're going to be in the stories because you wouldn't quit on me. You wouldn't. It was hard, and you wouldn't. Do sure. It. And and you're often under. He says it to him, so he recognizes it, which I love that there's a nod there that he's like, hey, I do actually know everything you're doing for me, even right, if right. if we don't state our feelings out loud because you know we can't get too crazy uh, <laughs> and just come out and say <laughs> how we feel about things all the time. But, yes, yes. So to wrap up and kind of say what's my meta narrative, looking back at those characteristics, Sam. Being yeah, I am curious about how yours how yours all all swing together because I I see a kind of arc, but I'm curious if you see the same arc between these things. Right. So I would summarize all these traits, um, you know, the dependability and the sacrifice, working on yourself, um, perseverance, perseverance and humility. I didn't actually say that for Lan. Um, integrity and patience. It's this idea of putting others um, before yourself, uh, the needs of others. I, it, to quote another person who's not on the list, but Spock always says, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. In this case, the few being or the yourself. One. The yes. one, right, exactly. And, I mean, for me, this is deeply personal for me, I think, just because it's something I aspire to. I wouldn't say that I'm always very good at, but this idea of, um, I've gotten okay with it with, with Michelle, I'll say. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. We've got a pretty good balance going on. Yeah. I'm still working on with Zach you know, I'm tired, I mean, and he's fed and he's taken care of, but when it's like, man, especially for, you know, an 18-month-old-year-old, 18-month-year-old, 18-month-old boy, um, if something is fun once, it's fun 100 million times. 
And right. I and want to jump usually, on you. Yeah. Yeah. Things are only fun for you like 500,000 times, <laughs> right? notably. So, and so <laughs> it's pretty rough after a while. So that idea that I come home at the end of the day and I've got time to play with him or I've got time to give my full self to him. Because what I want to do, what I want to do is get a beer and sit on the couch and read a book or watch something or just do whatever I want to do. Right. Not yeah, that in yeah. that moment. And, you know, I don't get to see him all during the day and, and that means so much to him. And, and I think, you know, it's not only me that does that. Obviously, Michelle does too. And that, that, that helps when you don't have to be the only one. Again, the value of a good partnership in marriage is that you don't have to all do that at once. But that, again, that's something else that when Michelle needs a little bit more, can I say, you know what? I'm tired too, but I'm not going to be in the who's more tired. Like, let me, let me take one for the team right now. Sure, um, sure. And I think that that's so important for men specifically because of the craving of status and the hierarchical nature that you you have to fight against that. Maybe a little bit more. I think it comes a little bit more easily to a lot of women than it does to men. Um, yeah, I can that agree idea with that. To, to, to sacrifice in, in that kind of way. Um, well, the other part of that being, uh, you know, having an actual goal, not just floating through life. All the people on my list. Oh. Yeah. Oof. You know, and, and you talked about the same thing. Like, I mean, you know, the cause and the fact, you must impose that. I mean, that is such a concept if we're talking about stereotypical masculinity of conquering something, imposing your will on nature, even if that's what it is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. This idea that I have to have a goal. Um, but you have to be willing to yep. pay the cost. And I think that's something that I tried to choose with all my people. All these guys are willing, they, they acknowledge that there will be a cost and they will pay it anyways. Right. Uh, reluctantly, maybe sometimes, gladly other times, but being cognizant of that cost and not trying to avoid it. Understanding that a lot of times it comes part and parcel with what you're trying to achieve. So Yeah, and it's funny to me too how this is this is the opposite of the toxic masculinity that we talked about, right? Right, absolutely. And I don't think that I, I, I sort of did that on purpose, but I kind of just thought, what are what what are the narratives that stand out to me in fiction? That, that yeah. I think of, especially when I think of like, you know, what, what do I aspire to be, right? What, what, what speaks to me in something like, man, I want to be like that. I want to think of myself in the same light. You know what I mean? If I can think of myself to being as cool and awesome as Lan from Wheel of Time is, right? Or um, if, you, as, if you're that awesome, by the way, we're going to abandon <laughs> me co-hosting this podcast that I'm just going to listen. Right. Or, or if I can awesome, be, dude. I can be as beloved by my family as Jack Pearson on This Is Us is. I mean, he died in a fire, right? Spoilers if oh, you haven't watched. Oh, man. Spoilers. I, they tell you that in the first episode. Okay. Oh, um, okay. He's dead. The whole conceit <laughs> of the show is that he's dead. Like, it's all flashbacks, huh. right? And so wow. he's got that going for him. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that they, not that he's dead, because that's no fun, but as far as his memory and legacy, when you... when You, you don't know. It may be great. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, if, if they could look at me in that way, like, if you're that beloved, sure. and he's a, a flawed individual... But man, does he put his family and his kids first? And he is not rich. He's not famous. I mean, he. But all these, all these guys, right? It, it, it's I'm taking sometimes the front seat, sometimes the back seat, you know. But yeah, it's whatever it's becoming, it is. It's becoming a servant, contravening yeah. the nature of what we might think of as ascending a hierarchy. Is saying that the best way to ascend that hierarchy is to sort of dive for the bottom, you know? Right. Uh, I, I'm reminded of the the vision of Atlas sort of holding the world up. Right. You mm -hmm. put the world on your shoulders, the weight of the world on your shoulders, or the the king is the servant of all that kind of thing. 
And so the way that you can be most king-like is to be the person that's like, you know what, I am going to come home and clean the cat box and let the dog out and then take care of the dishes and change this diaper and do these things, which you might think, because I have this status, I don't have to do that. Well, okay, maybe that's the way it could be, but the way it should be, if you're if you're trying to be a real man, is to say, and I even hate that terminology, real man. It seems like there's a single definition, but right. you know what I mean. Yeah. The idea that if you're trying to be that masculine ideal or fit that meta narrative, it's, I could ignore all of these things, I suppose, but I'm not gonna, and there's no way I ever would. Yeah, and I and I and it's so and I know we've talked on and on about how needed it is, but it is so needed because if we're turning to professional athletes, right, for our for our exemplars <laughs> of true masculine and not that there aren't great professional athletes, but you there know, are at least one. What's value about someone like LeBron James is that he cares about education and he raises his children and seems to be doing it and loves his wife. Right, I mean, I'll like, have to I mean, take your word for it because I know yeah. nothing about you know LeBron nothing about James. LeBron James, right? Exactly. I'm trying to. <laughs> I, think I know of, that he's yeah. supposed to be very good, but that some people like Kobe better. That's what I know. <laughs> well, you know, Kobe cheated on his wife, so you know, there's that. Oh well, right? that's uh, lame. But you, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of your prowess on the field does not translate to moral character, right? And in that, and in a lot of right. times that can be secondary. Um, and don't we talk about that all the time? Like we get mad. Because athletes don't Charles Barkley. I know you don't know who Charles Barkley is. I don't. I think. know exa- Charles Barkley was on the Bulls and had a great bank shot and played with Michael Jordan and then got fat and talks a bunch of crap on ESPN. You, you're right about I know the stuff. fat part. None of the rest of that was right. Um, no, he was on the Bulls. Wasn't no, he? Charles Barkley played for the Suns. Are you sh- no? Yes. No way. Yeah. And he doesn't work for ESPN either, but that's okay. Um. Anyways, uh, but Charles famously said, like, you know, he had a little rant about when he was playing that he didn't want to be a role model, which people got mad about. You don't get that choice, right? Well, you don't get that choice. People want to be mad about, but I'm like, yeah, he's basically saying, like, please don't make me a role model. Like, I'm not going to be good at it. Charles Barkley not pay for the Bulls? I need to just go over this for a second. What? (laughs) My whole life is a lie. Well, it's okay. I don't. I still. And had the spitting incident. I'm looking on his NBA career on Wikipedia. Then he also Suns, played for the Suns, yeah. Role model controversy, it says. Yeah. And then Houston Rockets. Okay, so I am learning that not only did... And DUI conviction I'm seeing here. Okay, so not only should we not assume that Charles Barkley plays for the Bulls, we should also not assume that we should be like him in any way. <laughs> Holy crap. Right. Unless you're talking about playing power forward, because then you definitely want to be like then Charles Then you should Barkley. be like Charles Barkley. Uh, okay, fair it, enough. Yeah, he's basically begging people not to do that, and... People are mad about it. Like, be different, Charles Barkley. And I'm like, why don't you go be the role model for you? I mean, I don't, so sure. it's, it, it, you know, I, I say that flippantly as if I didn't grow up pretending to be Tom Glavin in my backyard for no other reason than he got a lot of strikeouts and played for the team that was near where I grew up, right? So right. it's a pretty natural thing. But I, I think it just shows that it's needed, that we, we, we lack those meta narratives because we're turning to someone who is. You know, we like to use these kind of war and life metaphors for sports, but they don't. And not that they don't have any value or they don't teach anyone anything. Right. But they're not war and they're not life. Right. But I mean, these are people that are, uh, you know, it takes all kinds. Right. Again, being good at your job doesn't mean that you're a good person in whatever your job is, unless your job is like, you know, being good personing, being a nun. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Jesus impersonator. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Something like that. But I, so I, there's a strong lack in these good, positive narratives. And I feel like as sure. a culture, we're searching for them in a lot of the wrong places. And 
one, I think I think fiction is helpful because it absolutely they, is. They can be crafted right in a certain way, and when a fictional yes. character is flawed and disappoints you, you can learn from that a little bit because there's a degree of separation. But at the same right. time, and, and fiction is safer, right? That's yes. why we use fiction is because exactly. you can do whatever you want in fiction, and there are no immediate real world consequences. Right. And I can examine this at an arm's length if need be. But if I do right. want to bring right. it in and make it very intimate and mold it to my own life and put myself in the place of these characters. I can do that without having to say, you know, that's again, like you just said, they're not real. So it, it's again, that degree of separation that I, okay, I can compare myself to this character and this person, but it's not like, Oh, well, I don't like them because they voted for the wrong party or <laughs> right, they wear the wrong, may not even exist. Right. Yeah. They wear the wrong colors or they do whatever. And so sure. we can pick well, hey. someone like that and compare ourselves without having a, ignoring all the complications of real life to a certain degree. I think you're exactly right, and I think there's a lot more that we could say on that, too, but we are also at over an hour. So I do think we need to wrap up pretty yeah. soon, yeah. but before we go, uh, I want to share an experience that I had this week, um, and I've already mentioned that Jess and I are having a boy, but the experience of finding out about that, is that cool with you if we talk I about would, that really quickly? I would love to hear about that. Okay, so first of all, as a good Republican, I should say that this was not a place that accepted insurance. Rather, it was run exclusively by the private sector, and <laughs> it was just a dream. We were in and out in 15 minutes, and the cost was very low. But we went to a specific place for ultrasounds that um, my wife made an appointment at, and we went in, and we went to this room. And we've, we've had an ultrasound, right? We've done that before this this past Friday. And uh, my wife says the baby looked like a tadpole a little bit. I went with alien, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, little green men kind of style alien. But your first ultrasound, the baby looks rather odd. Um, and when we went back for this one, and we've been, we've been tracking it on all the apps and everything. So we know our son is about three inches long at this point. Right. The um, size of an avocado or whatever. Yes, food. yes. We're doing, the, we're doing that whole tracking of which which fruit is your child like today. <laughs> yeah, which cuddly right. woodland creature too. There's a yes. lot of those. <laughs> it's right. never so like which poisonous spider is your child the size of, right? Y- y- no, but I'm going to find out now just because of that. Um, so anyway, we're he's roughly the length of a tarantula, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, we went in for this ultrasound. And as soon as the the technician like put the put the camera on my wife's stomach to to find the picture of our child, I was I I did I my wife will lie and say I cried. I did not cry. Not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. I did get very teary though. Um, you held those tears in your eyelids like a man, though, right? <laughs> I sucked them back into my face, yes, <laughs> and causing myself indigestion later. Um, but there was this really sort of like phenomenal experience of like, I can see my child. And I know that later on that's going to come with when I can see my child, I can also like smell my child and understand there's going to be like some work that goes along with that because my kid just pooped his diaper again and... You know, like I just changed this diaper and now it's full of poop immediately oh afterwards. Right. And also this is like otherworldly poop that is somehow the color of Dijon mustard and it's going to ruin hot dogs for like a year or something. Okay, but don't I- <laughs> Dijon mustard on your hot dog. Oh my gosh. No one do that. What? No, people do that all the time. Um <laughs> People do heroin That's- too, Grant. That doesn't mean it's okay. okay. <laughs> Those are false equivalency, my friend. 
Heroin and Dijon mustard on a hot dog are not the same thing. It depends on what else is on the hot dog and the nature of the hot dog. But anyway, we had this experience. I got to see my kid and yeah. it was it was mind blowing. Like I did like you know, I don't really I don't consider myself and generally a pretty emotional person. I have mm-hmm. I'm not super emotional, but I've been very emotional about this. And in in college, you you and several others called me a hate bot. Right, that I was right. void of emotion. So the only emotion I experienced was yeah. hate. Which programmed is, oh, only to hate. Oh, <laughs> programmed only. That's right. But there's something very special about getting to see your kid, you know, and, and knowing that, you know, here comes this child that is going to be mine. I'm really excited about that. Also, we're naming him William. Um, we don't. We haven't decided on a middle name. He'll go by the middle name. Um, but we're naming him William, which is my first name and my dad's first name and Jessica's grandpa's first name and my grandpa's first name. So this will be the fifth William in our family. Awesome. Uh, William John Grant Overman Vickery just rolls off the tongue. Huh? It just, you know, that's that's so smooth. It's too smooth. You know what? I don't think I can do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, I'm going to have to just back away from that one immediately and quickly. Uh but I'm I'm very excited about it. That's so, awesome. If you listen to the podcast, you'll hear all the news of what's going on with my wife's pregnancy and blah, 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 because I'm not going to be able to not talk about it. So there's that. Well, and you should be excited. And that is, that is to be serious, that's awesome. Yeah, there's nothing quite like, other than laying your eyes on your child in real life for the first time. Right. I imagine um, that will be even better, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I... I I couldn't handle it. Like once once everything was fine and I could, I like laid my head next to Michelle on the hospital bed and just sobbed like a baby for a good like solid minute. And then was like, okay, now I can maybe. I wasn't useful up to that point, so it wouldn't have been a, been a big deal. That is the single most useless I've ever felt in my entire life. Was by uh, the way yeah. during labor. So just prepare yourself for that. I don't know how you handle feeling useless, but. If it's not well, I just imagine it's you. like being you when it's time to mow the lawn at the house in Abilene, which <laughs> it just won't happen. So that's amazing. My if I was going to tell my one experience in fatherhood this week, uh, it'll be very brief. I just I got peed on for the first time in months. Did you uh, this past week? Yeah. Well, get congratulations putting, on putting that. You know in what? The bath. Everybody and, gets peed on for a last time and you don't know when it's the last time. Yeah, I so. thought that had happened for me. But I took the diaper off to put him <laughs> in the bath, and he said, poop. And I said, do you need to poop? And he said, yes. But he answers every question with the word yes, pretty much. Ah. Um, and I was I, I froze because I'm like, you're about to poop right here, and there's nowhere for it to go. And then I, he just peed on me instead. So he totally, like, <laughs> faked me out. I don't think that it was on purpose, but if it was, it was brilliant. And then <laughs> thankfully the bath was right there, so he, his problem was solved quickly. Mine was mine was not. But I was just like, okay. Oh, so. man. This is this is the life I've willingly put myself in. Right? Well, these stories and similar stories <laughs> to come, many scatological and, <laughs> and similar tales are in our future. I, but hope, I think that's all the time we have for, for our podcast. No, yeah, it's definitely going to... It's, it's true, and it will continue to be true for both of us, I imagine. This is Two Dads Named Grant. I am Grant Vickery. And I'm Grant Overman. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>